You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I am John Erico here with Ryan Goldfarb. And today we have a very special guest, Brandon Liebenskind. Is that pronounced that correctly? That's correct, Liebenskind, yes. Okay, perfect. I am very excited for this episode because if you recall two of our previous episodes where we talked to a title agency, today we're going to be talking about another very important aspect to property owners and property investors and just people in general, which is insurance. So why don't we start with the very basics? Could you just describe a little bit who you are and sort of your your role in the world and your role in the insurance world? Sure. So, uh, well, first of all, thank you, Ryan and uh, John, for having me uh, here as part of this podcast. Uh, certainly great. The So a little bit back about me. My name is Brandon Liebeskind and dating, I'm all mid, I'm in my mid-30s and my insurance background goes to Actually, the summer of 2007, when I was an intern for a an insurance agency out in Liberty Corner, New Jersey, and I've had different roles within insurance in the life and health side, but most recently, over the last few years, been focused on something called property and casualty. And property and casualty coverage is refers to the structure of any really type of building, and then liability really encompasses a lot of of different types of coverage for really anything you get sued for. And that could be by an employee, that can be by third parties from a number of things. It could be from shareholders, from investors, and a few things we could talk about. So I know this segment will be focused on property coverage for real estate investors. But so my my background really is in property casualty coverage and and trying to provide a uh, the right solutions rather than just a quote to uh, the folks I work with. And so I, I enjoy what I do. I get a little too excited talking. PNC coverage is very different than title, which was the topic uh, a few weeks back. And so I hope we're all uh, just as excited as I am here. I, I'm very excited. So maybe we could start at, at the beginning of, of the process. So many people that listen to the podcast are themselves investors or thinking about getting started in investing. Very basically, what what is property insurance? I mean, I know that's an obvious question, but the, the, I, I imagine that your answer might reveal other questions that would not be obvious to people not in the industry. Let's maybe start with the context of being rental property, because I know I'm sure it looks a little different if it's a. Are you saying owned, 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 owned rent pro- rental property? Right. So right. let's say like an occupied rental. Sure. So actually, no, very fair question. So so a, a, a piece of property is really anything that happens to the actual physical structure, and that the reason actually that's important because in any building, let's say even just someone's home, there's personal what we call personal and business personal contents that anything not nailed into the permanent structure. So you're talking about your cabinetry, your light fixtures, your exterior, your floors, ceilings, uh, everything that's part of the foundation, uh, physical structure and foundation is part of your property coverage. And the reason actually that is important is because there's different types of forms in insurance. There's things called basic, broad, and, and special. And what's interesting about those as you really get nitty gritty with insurance is the basic, broad, and special refer to how specific and how general the insurance you have is because you want as few exclusions as possible. And what those different forms refer to, basic, broad, and special refer to what kinds of perils are covered. And you know that, that is important. There's a lot of policies, particularly if you're along um, an ocean front, you may be excluded for wind and hail, which I'll admit if you're inland, that seems ridiculous. When you take actually your property and casualty exam 
almost every policy would include wind and hail. And of course, fire, internal explosions, falling objects, ice, usually basic things that are, that are covered, uh, as, well, as well as theft and vandalism. So things that are typically mostly covered on property insurance. Are, are these things equally, I guess, unique in depending on if it's an investment property versus an owner-occupied property? Like, are, is it evaluated any differently by an insurer? The way to respond to that question is what insurers may look at it. So certain insurers, you know, the, the household names, let's say the Allstate, State Farm, uh, Liberty Mutual, they, a lot of companies do write both personal lines and commercial lines coverage. However, New Jersey manufacturers, which has been advertising a lot on TV lately, they, they will just write usually the, those owner-occupied uh, places. So they, if you actually have a rental property in the form of an LLC or your own name, it's possible they might not actually write it. And, but the reason what's interesting about owner-occupied is it usually takes on less risk which means the, because the, the big factor for any investor is cost. We totally get it. Cost is a huge issue. It's, it's a, you know, a profit play. And so the insurance, you know, one aspect of course is, is the pricing and, you know, the pricing usually comes down on an owner occupied property. So if it's a three unit multifamily, if there's the owners living in it, it, there's usually less concern for the, for the insurance carrier. I mean, this is maybe a little into the weeds on the underwriting process, but what are the, are there enumerated factors that a carrier takes into account when determining that risk? Like obviously one is you alluded to is, is the owner living there, but like, are there, uh, I'm assuming it's maybe by the type of home, the age of home, maybe the zip code of the home, I'm assuming to some extent, what are the, what are the factors that go into that? All of the above. So, so John, yes, you hit the nail on the head with really a good, I would say, start of all the factors that would go into the what an underwriter and insurance company will look at. So yes, the location number one. Yeah, the zip code, of course. And really, you mentioned zip code, but we're within the zip code. So the actually the best way to describe the to answer that question is something called cope. And that uh, when we look at a building or a structure. So C O P E. And you look at any type of risk or structure. C is is refers to the construction type. Is it masonry or brick? Is it frame? Is it fire resistive? Some sort of steel structure, maybe for a larger uh, building. Oh, would be occupancy. So if you just have, you know, and your average day tenants who are maybe younger families, great. Well, do but do you have a commercial tenant on the bottom floor? And if so, do they have commercial cooking equipment or are they a manufacturer? Are they producing heavy equipment? That's a big factor. The big one I've actually seen lately is if your uh, if your tenants are uh, college students, if you're right near a college campus, that could actually could play a main role. So occupancy is big. P is protection. So P would refer to your sprinkler system, central alarm systems. And then E would be exposures. Exposures, big factor because it's 43, well, a huge function of the percentage of claims out there is proximity to water. River, lake, ocean, those are really the main factors. And in terms of the construction though, we're also, yes, looking at the age of the building. For older homes, uh, how long ago the electrical was last updated, plumbing, roof, you know, things like that. So an appraisal is always, an inspection report always helpful to look at. For the exposure component, I don't want to delve too deep into this because this is probably a, a whole topic unto itself. But I know that flood coverage is is a fairly big thing these days, especially in the wake of around here, Hurricane Sandy. Has it always been the case that the flood insurance industry has been kind of a subset of its own? Or at one point in time, was that rolled into traditional coverage? Great point there. Yes, flood has always been a sticky point for a lot of, of investors, landlords, because if you're in a high-risk flood zone, an AE zone. So if you look at the, the FEMA map, and you, anyone can see it online, you can go you can go to the website and look at a very interactive map. FEMA.gov, we're not sponsored. 
<laughs> and, I've become very familiar with this map, unfortunately, yeah. or fortunately. <laughs> I, I, would, I would hope so. And so, but the reason that's important, because anytime you're you're dealing with a lender, the, the lender, along with the property coverage to protect their investment, is going to require flood coverage. And so one asp- the first thing to address is how much you can get through in flood coverage for a building three units and under, it's $250,000 before you have to go to a special type of insurer. If it's beyond three units, you can get up to 500,000 of building coverage. And this is for NFIP? This is for NFIP. And then if you wanna go above that, that's where you have to go into special markets. And so to, to answer your question, Ryan, in 2012, 95 to 100% of the flood insurance market was, was controlled by the uh, National Flood Insurance Program, which is an arm of FEMA. And well, what happened after Superstorm Sandy back in 2012, the NFIP program had a $25 billion hole. And so now in, for government standards, that doesn't actually seem like that much money for the federal government. However, you know, there's really only one way to make up that deficit. And so it's to raise premiums, to raise rates. And it's just not, not over the last eight years, it's not just by a little bit. It's you're seeing 10, 15, eight, up to 18% increases for a lot of areas that aren't, aren't really grandfathered in because of maybe where they are, the type of building they have. So you, we've seen some huge increases. I know it's a big concern for a lot of, a lot of owners out there. And it, it's, it's unfortunate because you know, a lot of them view it as a tax because even unless you're truly oceanfront, a lot of structures in certain neighborhoods weren't obliterated and put into the river or the ocean, like I said, unless you're oceanfront. And so, you know, that is a, a, a sore subject for a lot of folks having to purchase that. I guess the one comment is maybe that's where, where, where someone like me, we come in to really analyze the deductibles. How can you use the deductibles to really, you know, put more money in your pocket? Has it always been the case that something like flood coverage has been an exclusion on a regular policy? Has that always existed as like a secondary market? Typically, yes. So you're talking about a one, two family home. So in terms of an example of the traveler's policy, they're not going to include flood insurance uh, on their own forms. And that's where you have to go outside to the NFIP or a separate market more and so what we've seen though in the last eight years because of, so the point I was trying to get at earlier is what we've seen over the last eight years is because the NFIP has had to raise rates so much, it's allowed private insurers to come into that marketplace and be competitive. So we've seen different types of companies, a lot of which start out on the Lloyds of London Exchange. So the, which have evolved into companies you've heard of uh, that have that do write it, Selective, AIG. You know, the one fear though of writing with a Lloyd's of London carrier, though, is it's not backed up by the state. So kind of like an FDIC-insured bank is if that company were to go insolvent, there's really no backup support. And especially in a case of a large flood or hurricane, well, that actually can be a pretty important factor because a lot of people will get wiped out all at once. So you're not talking about like a fire, which is going to happen just randomly on, on one given property, but you're talking about flooding that may happen and wipe out like an entire region. That's correct, and so that's something to consider. When um, not to say I'm I'm directing everyone to an FIP, but there's there's certainly a safety net. Is even with the twenty five billion dollar hole that the, that program was in the flood program, is they're still going to pay out, and so that's you know the one advantage of being going that route. As long as the U.S. government is still around, right? <laughs> <laughs> not to get, not to get too tied to flood coverage, but what's the uh, I hear like name storm as a common term in that space is, is there, is quote unquote flood coverage 
specific to flooding pertaining to like a hurricane or tropical storm? Is it different from flooding that might occur from like a sewer backup? Is it different from flooding that might occur from like a boiler exploding in a basement? No, no, that's a really good point. And that's where actually (laughs) to your point, Ryan, is actually why you do want to read your insurance policies, which I know everyone loves to do because... (laughs) What you'll see, so let's go back to the travelers example. Travelers is no travelers is notorious in a some sort of property policy. It could be a, your basic homeowners, could be a rental property. Go 10, 15 pages down. They're gonna have this really a single page that says this is not flood coverage. And so it is very important to understand what is the definition of flood coverage. So fl- a flood is a normally dry body of land that encompasses two acres that is normally dry and being infiltrated with water and coming onto your property. And so the easiest way to think of that is waters from the outside, external forces. So as you said, from the sewer, the street, backyard, coming into a home, basement, and and causing a flood, that would be deemed as needing flood insurance, where your basic property policy with a Travelers, a Chubb, a Hartford, what they will cover is those internal events. And what are those internal events? A a sprinkler head bursting, a pipe Mm -hmm. bursting. Things like that. So anything inside, typically that's where with, with your better carriers, that's that's really with the defining line. So you talk about internal explosion mm-hmm. with some sort of boiler or hot water heater. Yes, that's most likely will you'll have coverage under your, your the policy you probably got in the first place. But the flood, that's from something external forces coming onto your property. While we're on the topic of exceptions, what are what are some common things to look out for that one might think if they don't look at their policy more closely? maybe excluded that they might otherwise assume would be covered? Sure. So in, in terms of exclusions, uh, one, let's let's start with the common ones that are excluded. It's very hard to get coverage for lead because it's resulted so much, or lead paint, because it resulted so much in claims from years past. And same thing with mold. And so if you actually ever look at a, uh, a policy these days, there's a, a common agreed upon sublimit for mold and fungus coverage somewhere between ten dollars and $25,000 because it can be very costly. I don't know if you've, anyone listening to this program has dealt with mold remediation. It can be very costly mm-hmm. in, in certain situations. I know, John. I John's have. familiar with lead. <laughs> lead, familiar with sure. lead and With mold. lead, yeah. yeah. And that's why certainly if, for an older structure, everyone wants to know, you know what kind of updates have been made to, to make sure there's really no lead around because, yes, it can be very costly. Was it a costly venture for you, John? Well, I guess it's unfolding in a sense, but it was it would have been costly if not for the presence of grant programs that helped with the remediation of the issue. That we um well it's 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 a that story could be a, a podcast. Story. That story could be a whole podcast. But to answer your question, it was not as costly as it could have been, but it was still a little bit uh, concerning. Yeah. The nuts, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. So going back to Ryan's question about exclusions. The best way to answer your question is actually depends on the size of the property because you'll see different maybe limitations put on for your larger buildings versus your one, two, three, two, three family ones. So if you're running once again with your travelers, your Hartford Chubb, and it's a one family structure, most likely you're you're gonna you won't see too many exclu- crazy exclusions included. So when you deal with those larger buildings. 10, 15, 20 and up units, that's where they may put some limitations on what something called safeguard protection. Uh, are you familiar with that term, safeguard no. protection? So safeguard protection is if the building is, let's say, maybe being worked on and for whatever reason, you have to turn off certain systems like the sprinkler system, the central alarm system for whatever reason. Well, 
if an incident occurred during that time. So let's say you turned off the sprinkler system, even for a couple hours, what do you know if a fire happens? Even if the, it doesn't burn down the whole building, but a fire happens significant enough where you would normally fire a claim, if that safeguard protection clause is on the policy, the insurance company actually has the right to deny paying out the claim. And so things to keep a look out for. The big one that is probably most relatable to pretty much anybody is something called coinsurance. So coinsurance, unlike the term copay with health coverage, which is how much you pay for the office visit, coinsurance in property coverage is a way for the insurance company as a whole to make sure structures are properly valued for their full replacement cost. And so that way it prevents someone buying a million dollar property say, you know what, I really only want 150,000 in coverage. It kind of removes that imbalance between insurance company and the insured. And but not every company does that. So what'll happen is the insurance company will also say, okay, you need to have 80 or 90% coinsurance. That means buildings, the we they think the replacement cost is a million or maybe around a million. If 80% coinsurance means you need to have at least $800,000 of coverage. Otherwise, even if there's a smaller claim of only $200,000, you will get penalized based on the amount you should have had relative to $800,000. If, if you want, I can walk through a math example. I don't know if that's appropriate. I think that makes sense. I, so is that not just enforced at the time when you would bind coverage? Wouldn't they know? So they would know? Well, that's what the underwriters are looking at is to make sure you are insuring to value. Okay. And they could be, once again, they're not necessarily, not every home is inspected. Every insurance company has the right to inspect the home, but let's say they don't. And so they're kind of taking a guess from Google Maps and other sources online to figure out what they think the replacement cost is based mm -hmm. on the square footage, age of the home, updates, uh, construction type. That's where, uh, you know, they do take a look at, but they could be wrong. And so, but there's other other aspects to a policy to look out for. And you're talking about exclusions, but ordinance law. You have an older home. Well, a structure 50 years ago, you obviously have to rebuild the code now, mm -hmm. which could could certainly cost more. So one thing to look at uh, for a on a policy as well. Does that also consider whether or not it's permissible to rebuild that type of structure. So if you have a, say you have a four family on a lot that's zoned for one or two family and it's deemed a total loss, does LNO coverage also cover any like ramifications uh, surrounding what you're able to rebuild as? So the point of insurance is indemnification. They, right. The in, term indemnify as the attorney here would know is to make you whole again. Right. And so even if you can't build a, you, we're talking about a four story structure, was that? What, what I'm saying is if if you are insuring a property that is not in compliance with current zoning codes, either based on use or based on Size. entity or some some characteristic like that, does does the LNO coverage provide any indemnification for that? It probably would not, most likely. Uh, that great great question, and I can look into that more. My from previous experience, no, but. Once again, the reason I brought up the term indemnification is they will still try to make the structure to code that you're allowed to have mm -hmm. up to that that limit of coverage. So you know, the reason I asked about a four-story, let's say no longer can you build a four-story, but you can build a three-story. So mm -hmm. maybe you build, you spread it out a little bit mm -hmm. more. You get um, the same square footage, it's just spread correct. across three stories as opposed correct. to four. Maybe we can take one step back and just talk about the way that these policies look. Because I imagine that a lot of people, even people that have 
insurance policies have maybe never even read them or maybe never even being aware that they could read them. Uh, maybe they'll see like the, the deck page or something and that's it. How, so if I or anyone were to read an insurance policy, can you just tell, just describe some of the operative terms that you would see? I know obviously people know what a deductible is or the, the existence of that. We talked a little bit about exclusions. What are sort of like the, the key elements that go into a policy? Sure. So the, well, the, any policy is broken down into sections. So the first section is your declarations page. And that's really the main, probably the one, two pages really everybody probably does look at. Right. And that's where it talks about your deductible. It talks about your limits of coverage. Well, it usually mention your premium. And so it'll go down the list of, yeah, your structure coverage, business, personal property, uh, rental income protection, general liability, those things. But then going deeper into the policy, and then there's things called conditions. You know, things that the insured has to do or or meet, and typically maybe just as simple as paying your premium, and then you will have coverage. And there will be a list for that. And really, I'll just say the nuts and bolts of in terms of, as you said, what is what is covered, what is what is not covered. But we would refer to conditions and other aspects of the policy is there is a due diligence of the insured. If there is a problem, let's say there is water damage to the ceiling, is if you know that's been going on, you can't just let that get worse over by not taking care of it for maybe a four month period. Mm -hmm. And that's where some sort of uh, adjuster may come out and say, what is, wait a second, this has been going on for four months. Mm -hmm. And there, there might be stipulations in there to say, Hey, you're, you have some due diligence to do when there is a claim you're supposed to notify the insurer Mm -hmm. or at least take care of it. I totally understand the deductible element, you know, is a big factor because you may just be paying most of it out of your pocket, but what is the interplay of, say, local, state, whatever laws over this type of coverage? Is Are there laws that say, hey, you need to, an insurance company needs to provide the X minimum amount of coverage, or the deductible has to be some percentage of this, or the premium has to be some percentage of that, or is it totally the Wild West? So, yeah, so in, in, in the property casualty coverage, uh, you're... I wouldn't say it's the wild, wild west. We are, as the financial services industry, we are highly regulated at the state level. Mm-hmm. But unlike healthcare, life insurance, so forth, the property companies, property insurance companies do have to submit their rates to, to the state. Mm-hmm. And so there is regulation there. However, let's say there is a some sort of legal battle or lawsuit between the insured and the insurance company. There's something called uh, an aleatory agreement, mm-hmm. which is where it is pretty one-sided because who's making these contracts? The insurance companies. So they understand the insured, unless you're a very, very large Fortune 500 company where you can really negotiate the terms of the policy, your average everyday property owner really doesn't have too much say. Maybe they can negotiate premium a little bit, but in terms of the wording and the clauses that are in there, maybe not so much. So because it is very one-sided, that if there is actually any sort of legal suit going on, it is the judge usually rules in favor of the insured because of that, because the wording is almost essentially is exclusively in favor of the insurance carrier. I would imagine that the other layer of protection, if you want to call it that, is the presence of a lender in the process. I mean, I, I know that on on our stuff, I think oftentimes the requirements that are imposed are mostly dictated by the lender rather than the client themselves. I think that they usually kind of, we usually kind of take our cues from what the lender wants. Okay, good point. And I see that come up very frequently because any deal is usually being financed. And so the lender will have some minimum requirements because once again, they're protecting their own investment. So what are they very much concerned about? Concerned about is the structure itself. They want to make sure there's adequate property coverage. Now, the one interesting thing about lenders, and I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. I know actually a number of lenders, all very good all different types of hairstyles. <laughs> they very actually rarely specify the amount 
of coverage needed. They say, well, we need replacement cost. But if you actually ever talk to one, they they may give an appraisal, but they don't actually specify, okay, we need for this amount. And that's really where it's up to us to then kind of determine that and or use maybe one or two appraisals to try to figure that out. Sometimes the people doing the appraisals, uh, not so much, but you're talking, going, talking about the lender. So what's interesting about the lender is that's really all they care about is the structure. With the property owner, the insured, there's more things than that that they care about. The right. rental income protection, mm-hmm. you know, with the... Uh, the tenants can't live there any longer and pay their rent. That's pretty important. If a tenant, either they get injured or they invite company over that gets injured on premises, well, that, that could fall on the, the landlord's hands. And so that's that would fall under uh, commercial general liability. And that you know that is pretty serious. Once again, the lender does not necessarily care about that. Not to sound rude, but that's not their concern. Right. The other thing is, is that something, a very important topic is called risk transfer, is what you're doing to kind of hold the 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 property owner to be held harmless in the event that the the tenant makes a mistake. So maybe they started the fire or someone got injured in, in their unit because of maybe they they would wet their floor and someone slipped and fell. And that's where actually having some sort of risk management procedure to review policies of your tenants is a big factor. Once again, the the lender may not actually need that information, but an insurance company wants to see that. The insurance company wants to make sure your your tenants are, are properly covered. And I'll admit, I'd see it all the time, usually for a commercial space where let's say you own a two-story commercial building with, with four commercial tenants in it. And if, if just one of those tenants doesn't maintain general liability coverage, the insurance company overseeing the whole building may, may deny coverage. And so little things like that because it, it provides a layer of protection for the landlord because the tenant's coverage will become primary in, ca- in case they, they do something wrong. And in that case, the insurance coverage for the whole building would essentially audit the building and say, give me all the policies of your tenants or disclose what's going on. Yeah, that does happen. They want to make, exactly. They, they want to see certificates of insurance. They may mm-hmm. even want to see the policies themselves mm-hmm. to see what's actually covered. It, I, I'll admit, I just saw it two months ago with... It was across the river in New York where family that owned several commercial buildings and they they literally had one policy getting non-renewed and they were having trouble getting new coverage and they were getting actually into a legal battle with one of their tenants because the, just one of their, actually they have three tenants, one of their tenants refused to maintain general liability. Then after a, a month later, they actually f- finally got, were able to get coverage in place by that tenant. I don't know how they did it, but little things like that. And it there's that trickle effect and it's it's interesting so it's more than sometimes just saying okay any insurance there's there's more at play particularly when you have a, a commercial tenants particularly say you're a a landlord you have a, a building that you rent out a couple of units how many insurance providers say in new jersey are there that you could choose from for in coverage like 500 Ooh, 10 yeah 30? Well, no that's a really good one actually and i'll admit probably one of the first times i've received that question of how many companies are out there well, I guess I'm wondering, you know, for, for if, if someone's out there looking to get insurance, obviously, how many companies will, will even present a poll, you know, sort of be in, in, in the conversation about providing coverage for this building? How many options do you have? So, 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 so if I may backtrack a little bit, uh, John, to your point, it, it depends on the risk. Mm-hmm. So for instance, certain companies may not want to take on certain age buildings. Mm-hmm. Look at travelers, for instance. Travelers may not with a depending on the size of the building, let's say you have maybe more than three units, they may not want to take on a building older than 30 years. Mm -hmm. Philadelphia Insurance Company may not want to take on a building older than 50 years. 
Location so is important. blanket exclusion, if you have a building that's older than 50 years, never, just not and, and, that, and that depends on the insurer. Mm-hmm. So every insurer, it's something we look at as independent insurance professional brokers mm-hmm. and who, re, who are, our goal is to represent the client. Mm-hmm. So the advantage of not working with any one insurance carrier is because we're, we're not peddling the needs of the insurance companies. We're trying to represent the client and also be their, their claims advocate if, when something does go wrong. Right. But every insurance company, what we get from them, they do solicit us. They try to promote their brand. And what they always show us is what's something called a risk appetite. And every company has a different risk appetite. And that's really where we come in to facilitate how one insurance carrier differs from the next because of you know what they're good at. For instance, Philadelphia Insurance Company actually is very good at writing not-for-profits. Harleysville Insurance, very good at writing uh, contractors and construction. Mm. Uh, travelers in the Dow 30, very big company. They take on a lot of different risks. And they, uh, Hartford, for instance, actually also very good with restaurants, whereas a lot of companies don't want to take on restaurants. So for those people, those landlords who have a mixed-use building with a restaurant on the ground floor, that is actually something very important to consider mm-hmm. because just by having that one commercial tenant could really factor in really the number that you have uh, accessible to you in terms of insurance companies. So a- as a broker, say I were to go to you and say I have a four-family building. Yep. And it's built in 1900, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Immediately in your mind, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to try these different companies. Or is it, is it like an automated system that you go to and say, here is my client? Or is it a combination of both? Or I would say a combination of both. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to do, or we, we will do, is to go to certain markets, certain insurers, given the, those elements you mentioned too, that, that risk profile, we'll go to the insurer's at least maybe half a dozen mm-hmm. that we know are may consider that risk. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, we're going to use uh, a term called a wholesaler. Are, are you familiar with that term in the insurance world? Not so much in the insurance world. Okay, certainly in the real estate world. world. <laughs> <laughs> so a wholesaler in the insurance world. So if if my brokerage firm doesn't have a direct appointment with a particular uh, uh, carrier, let's say Amtrust. Let's say we don't write directly with Amtrust. We will go through a essentially a middle person who do, is appointed with them because they know they have more markets to go to and they mm-hmm. will essentially act as another advocate for us to try to facilitate, okay, which insurers can do that mm-hmm. uh, or can write this, this coverage. And so it's not so much an automated process. I wish it was. And I think on, the one downside with my the industry I'm in is it has lagged a bit behind with technology. Mm. And I know that's frustrated a lot of, of landlords out there because it is, the systems are very antiquated. Doesn't necessarily mean the coverage is bad, just means the interface, how clients, once again, receive their information, policies, proposals. Yeah, I mean, there's, there, there's a reason when I say, okay, hey, you're looking at a, a five-family structure, and it's like, okay, Brandon, I'm, I'm closing tomorrow. Where's my quote in an hour? And then, unfortunately, it's not that simple. It's a lot of it is manually done. There's a couple of companies that, yes, I can plug in some information, but it, it is one at a time. And I, being someone who's representing the customer and trying to source through many insurers, I don't want to just take the time and just look at one company. Is this typically negotiated, or is it you present them with a set of facts, they come back to you with what their number would be, or maybe some follow-up questions, and then once they fill in the box, their price is their price? It would probably be more so, in if, especially for your smaller, I would say small investors in terms of size of the building. So if the expected premium is, let's say, under $15,000 for the year, your ability to negotiate much with the insurance companies is probably limited. To them, you're not made. Depends on the carrier. So you're but, really just shopping around amongst different carriers who may have a different appetite for that risk? 
But part of what we have is, is a good relationship with different underwriters at various insurance companies. So they maybe they do want to keep us happy, gotcha. but they will usually come back to us, well, first of all, with questions. So a question that comes back with an older building is, well, what kind of circuit breakers do you use? There are ones that are known to be a little faulty. Sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. uh, Stadblock, the Federal Pacific. Federal yep. Pacific. Federal Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I just saw one a few weeks ago. We're trying to think we're in Northern Jersey. Uh, I think it was Kearney. There was a, a building and the rest of my team and the insurance companies were almost telling me to run because of, of the circuit breakers that were known to be in that building. So right. unless they can... They showed me a picture to prove they actually had newer circuit breakers. They they actually didn't want any part of the risk. And it's little things like that. But in terms of your what you're saying in terms of just getting a quote, yes, unfortunately, that is kind of how it works unless mm-hmm. it is a larger structure. So when you are dealing with your 50-unit buildings, there there is a little more room to negotiate back and forth with the underwriters. In our world, it's I think for your one to... 10 family, it's more so probably trying to just keep continue to source with different companies mm-hmm. and even ones you may, may not have heard of that are reputable, that are A-rated, uh, a and that's really our due diligence. Is the pricing generally reflective of what they see the risk as like kind of like the probabilistic cost to them? Or is it more so kind of like a business decision to say like, we want to put out X, or we want to bring in X amount of premiums this year. We need to do this bus, this much business. So we just want to take on more exposure right now and are willing to be a little more aggressive to do that. Sure. So the best way to address that, those comments is all these insurance companies are for-profit companies. And so depending on how aggressive they want to be, if they feel as if there's an opportunity in the marketplace or they just want to get their name out there and really just sign customers up so they get to know who Chubb is, who Travelers is, who Liberty Mutual is. And there are times, and every insurance company does go through those waves where they feel as business is down, they'll drop their rates. I'll give you an example, uh, Long Island, for instance. A lot of, I'm seeing out Long Island, a lot of property insurance is, is rising significantly. And I'll, I'll give you an example, a company that's very good writing in Long Island is Kingstone. They actually write relatively inexpensive homeowners coverage here in New Jersey but they're raising rates tremendously in Long Island. And I was like, almost panicking. Like, why is my rate going up 15, 20%? But relative to actually the rest of the market, it's actually kind of in line. But part of that increases because they were way underpricing the rest of the market. And my, my sense is maybe they were just trying to attract a number of new customers. And so you know, I don't know what happens to their head of uh, business development at Kingstone when, when that happens, when a lot of people leave because of these significant rate increases. So at the end of the day, it really is, it's a function of insurance companies taking different strides. And what you see now is there was a soft market for insurance rates for the last several years, and we are seeing a hardening in, in various lines of insurance. We can talk about some of them later on, but for the property insurance, commercial property, yeah, you're, you're not really seeing rates go down right now. The only coverage you're seeing drop in, uh, right now is, is workers' comp. So any business with employees, a super on-site, that's the one area maybe you can find a little relief. In the claims process. So I know a lot of insurers have different reputations for their ease or lack of ease if you have a claim. Does that go into part of your process when trying to find quotes for a client? Will you say, look, I'm, I'm going with XYZ insurer and they have the best rates or the cheapest premium, whatever it is. But if you ever have a claim like your SOL or is that, is that not part of the calculus? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and at the end of the day, the decision is on the insured. It's on the property owner. So what, what was a, a, a main t- decision factor we talked about before is, is the premium, is the price. Because as an investment proper, uh, 
property, you're you have to figure that factor that in. And so, you know, when I come across companies I've, I'm not familiar with, I've never heard of. I've just received. I think the most recent ones was Kumon. I think in a Chinese-based insurance company. Like Another, the after-school program. <laughs> K U M O N. Just that, that is the after-school. Program. Is, I don't I think, think that's really bad. Just never, never seen them before here in New Jersey until recently. Another one is a Vermont Mutual, and sounds very Vermont. Very Vermont. <laughs> and and what's just uh, what's interesting is when I've especially a company I've never heard before that is a little bit smaller. That's you know, if, if especially if I haven't placed, we haven't placed much business with them, I can't necessarily trust, you know, that, that claims process getting what you want. And actually someone just approached me the other day who wanted to switch companies from a company actually based in South Jersey called American European because they, it's a four unit condo building and they denied uh, a, a recent claim. And I was forwarded to the policy and not to sound rude, it was kind of a garbage policy because they are paying very little for it. So rightfully so, they had a, a claim denied. Why? Because the, first of all, the building was way, way underinsured. If they were that co-insurance penalty, definitely would have kicked in. Building probably worth well over 2 million, currently insured for 700, only 700,000. Uh, one, and you know, so I guess at the end of the day, the, a claim- so It was a garbage policy because it was so underinsured or just there were other things in the policy that were crazy? Yeah, so and I apologize for being extreme in the garbage policy. I think the garbage- would No, no, be, I'm curious what kind of makes a good or bad policy in, in your parlance. Sure, in, like in, in, in my view, one is, yeah, an A-rated carrier. Mm -hmm. And- A-rated is by this, a third part, like a trade agency that rates these carriers? That's correct. So AMBEST, S&P, uh -huh. your, your, your well-known rating agencies, they do rate every insurance company. This is something to consider. So even my, for my own professional liability purposes, I actually am not allowed to write an insurance company that's uh, below A-rated. Uh -huh. And it oh, is for your own, for my own sake, yes. Professionally, interesting. And because you know, I mean, we were talked about before about these flood companies. You know, what if one to go insolvent mm -hmm. and a one of my customers, an insured property owner, needed need that uh, need that money to rebuild and get their their investments back. Well, who are they going to go after? They're going after me. I sold them that policy. They're going right. to sue the heck out of me to to recoup those losses. And yeah, that's where my 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 you know comes in. So uh, you're remind me of the, the sorry the point we were addressing before. No, no, I, I guess I, I maybe distracted a little bit, but I, I was I was curious as to the how process. you yeah the, the the claims process. If any of these insurance companies have reputations that would caution you if you were recommended to a client be like yeah you know go with uh state farm not that i don't know anything about state farm because <laughs> you know state farm like if you ever have a, a fire man you're you're in trouble because state farm is notorious for xyz or, absolutely you know, and so that's that once again where is i where i come in to advocate you know what is the insurance the insured looking at or the property owner is they're looking at the rate well what makes a chub rate versus different than a traveler's rate mm -hmm. and that's where i come in to figure out okay is it worth the added cost if any for a different type of insurance company. Mm -hmm. And yes, a company like Chubb is- You're saying even if the policy is identical, same language, the policy the same, is, you know. uh, policy is identical, yes. So if you're saying claims, uh, hey, Brandon, uh, this actually does happen quite a bit. There are mm -hmm. people who come to me, not as much on the property investment side, but if there are usually homeowners who will come and say, you know, I, this is my home. I'm very risk averse. If if I pay for something, I know I want to get something good. And they'll ask for a particular insurance carrier right. that is known to be very quick and 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 generous, let's say, paying out claims. And that's that is how they differ. And 
you know, that, that is certainly a discussion to have. Most people, once again, are looking at the bottom line. Right. And because most people aren't looking to take out a claim. What is insurance for? It's, it's, a, it's risk transfer. So you don't have to do it, yeah. do no, it with I, the problem yourself. Part, part of my, you know, being curious is that up until, I think, as you know, very recently, I had never had a claim ever on any of my properties at all. And recently I did. I had a fire. And that process Sorry has that. been, yeah, no, it's, that process has been very frustrating, I would say, just just the claims process. And it's a little bit complicated, I think, because I'm an attorney and my, uh, my father-in-law is an insurance attorney. So he, you know, essentially uh, sues insurance companies on behalf of insured people. My perception of insurance, I think, is a little bit colored by that because whenever I see an insurance policy, I think, oh, I, I bet, you know, what litigation can spoil over from, you know, how can the insurance company sort of, you know, uh, uh, finagle their way out of coverage by looking at this uh, exclusion or this or that or this language? And, you know, oftentimes, at least for certainly for for major issues, like I think litigation is like just around the corner, right? It's almost like a someone will hire an attorney to represent them and then kind of bring that perspective. Absolutely. And, and so given your family dynamic, I'm surprised that you've allowed me to stay in this room with you for so long <laughs> without uh, throwing me out the door. So I, I do appreciate that. So I, I guess to your point, it brings back an example really where we come back to the price issue. Let me tell a quick anecdote about a friend of mine, husband and wife in their mid forties, both in insurance, the husband and actuary. And they've been living in Hoboken, Western Hoboken since 2001. So then fast forward to Superstorm Sandy. They were in an area that just got really hit hard. Now the structure did not come down. They're in a, they have a garage on the ground floor and then a couple floors above that. And I've been to this gentleman's home and he shows me exactly on the wall in the garage where the waters came up to. And I would say maybe three and a half, four feet high. And which is pretty significant. And he said during Superstorm Sandy eight years ago, him and his family received $1,200 in, in claim money from some random endorsement he had on his policy. I don't know which one, but they had some endorsement, $1,200 to pay for all this flood, water damage. He said his next door neighbor had Chubb at the time. And, Ch and the, in so many words, Chubb said, well, just list what you have. We'll take care of it. Mm -hmm. And so not to put Chubb on a pedestal versus others, but- I have heard this about Chubb before. I just yeah. and, and they have <laughs> built up that reputation. Right. And what makes it very- uh, ironic in this situation though, is the wife of this family I'm referring to, the wife currently works at Chubb. No. <laughs> and so they, the, the comment by the husband is, yeah, they're, but they're too expensive. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, it is, you get what you pay for. Right. So if you've, the people who are most hard felt is, is when you've dealt with a claim. If you've never dealt with a claim, at the end of the day, it's, it's a number. But if you've actually dealt with, I'm sorry to hear you had a fire. If you've dealt with water damage, uh, if you dealt with a falling object, you know, someone getting injured on your premises. I've seen decks collapse or heard of them collapse. And uh, that's, you know, certainly a big lawsuit. That's, that's really where you said, oh, well, oh, let me actually review what I have. Right. And I want to make sure I have something quality that doesn't, with a company that doesn't try to cut some corners. And, and at the end of the day, if, if, especially for a primary home, I, if there was some big lawsuit or, or property damage, that's where the, the court system will usually view in favor of the insured. Mm -hmm. But as a property owner, they, hey, they figure you're in this business, you should be reading your policy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it is important to look at exclusions. That's where I say resort to your, your, your insurance broker and have, and have them walk through with right. you. And that's where also the renewal process. We're seeing companies every year. Now, as we have, see a hardening market for just rates, well, how do insurance companies make up those lost revenues from the past years, one raise rates, but the other thing is to limit coverage. Mm -hmm. So they're putting in exclusions that they didn't have before. That's why you have to look at your policy every year or have, this, have someone review this it. This sort of adage, I think, um, of 
shopping around policies frequently, right? So if you have the same policy for your house for two years, three years, it's almost as though, or at least what, what I've heard is that by not shopping around that policy frequently, you're missing out because maybe that policy renews at whatever or anything in, in that realm. Is that is there something to that? or There's something, and you know, it just holds people in my industry accountable because people in any industry, people get complacent mm-hmm. and they... You know, some of my my peers will just assume that hey, customer X Y and Z will just renew next year, and so yeah, there is there is a shopping a sourcing element that that you that should be done, but also you need to review. It's it's not just say okay, let's see what else is better, but well, how has your situation changed? Have you taken on new investments? Well, what updates have you made to your buildings? Maybe mm-hmm. you put some money into it. Oh, good to know. You put on a roof, awesome. Or, or did you have any claims? I was going to ask if there are any like kind of big ticket items or investments that property owners can make that will help keep premiums in check or maybe offer a bit of a deduction. So in terms of investments, I mean, the question that always comes up is roof. Most insurance companies don't want to see a roof much older than 20 years, or at least show that you've made updates to it Mm -hmm. within the last 20 years. For your buildings beyond 30, 40 years old, yeah, they they want to know what kind of wire, what you've done for, to the electrical system and the plumbing um, for those older buildings. And mm-hmm. so some of those investments, yeah, that is that is good to know. Any idea how those translate into savings on premium or a, additional premium if they haven't been I think you're, you're more running into who will write it. So a, a, an insurance carrier that may offer more favorable rates may just say, you know, hey, well, we, we will take this on versus just declining it and then I have to go to the next carrier. So when... All of the carriers that we work with in what's called the standard market that are admitted by the state, let's say the state of New Jersey, if all my immediate go-tos, Amtrust, Hartford, Philadelphia, National General, Kingstone, Chubb, Travelers, if all of, let's say, and so on, if a number of those aren't willing to offer a rate because they said we don't want to take on the ri- this risk for whatever reason, then I have to go to what's called excess and surplus lines carriers that are trade on the Lloyds of London Exchange. And those carriers, for instance, know they've kind of ha- gotcha because- There's a reason you're there. Yeah, the only reason you're there is that you there's nobody else who are willing to write. So they unfortunately can kind of up the ante a little bit with the premium and because they know that you're a little bit stuck. And so if you t- take good care of your, your property, um, you may entice more folks. And I was just dealing with uh, a property owner, 20 units in a historical landmark building in upstate New York. And- and almost every carrier I looked at actually was willing to to consider it because this building, about ninety years old, was you know were just very well kept in good shape, constant updates. And now even companies that specialize in historic landmark buildings, you know, they were like, wow. But at the end of the day, they all admit their premium actually came in quite high. So even though they specialize, they offer you know they don't they exclude co insurance. They offer. Uh, a program where you get uh, historical landmark appraisals, kind of a lot of services that specialize in an industry. At the end of the day, I get it. Pricing is a key factor. So even if we find insurers that insurers that just seem like a great fit, all the time uh, landlords have to factor in the price. We get it. I think we may be running out of time for this episode, but I do want to ask one question, which uh, I think might be relevant to a lot of people listening. So many property owners, investors are buying even properties that are, say, turnkey and moving ready and are doing work to them. So as Ryan alluded to, maybe replacing the roof, maybe doing whatever. I know that the the quality of that work and who does that work varies tremendously. So it could be you yourself go and, uh, you know, repaint a wall or lay flooring or do cabinets or whatever, or you hired a GC or a licensed contractor or whatever else. 
how do those changes impact insurance from a claim standpoint? So say I go in and I lay some tile or something and I do an uneven job and somebody trips me versus a, a licensed contractor or say the electrical sphere, I rewire an outlet myself and don't get a licensed electrician to do that. How does that normally work out if I have a claim based on something that I, I personally did or something that was done to my house or allegedly done? Great point. And that's also where, you know, that's part of the risk transfer, especially with, so when you as a commercial owner, that's the, also the difference between your your own property that you live in your primary home versus the rental properties is, first of all, yes, I, I agree. It, there's a cost element doing it yourself. In terms of doing it yourself, it, it really depends on, I think, on the size of the job. If you're saying it's just you know, a matter of laying some wood floor in a couple of rooms. I, that's, I think anybody's going to understand, hey, not a big deal to do it yourself or hire a handyman. We, we get it. It's those bigger jobs that insurance companies want to know about. Are you doing a fifty dollars to $100,000, $200,000 renovation? That's where you're getting into the realm with at least let insur- insurance company know. They may not actually charge you more, but it'll be noted that there's construction or renovations going on because you don't want, of course, you don't want them to exclude. They're not necessarily always going to penalize you, but they, the more information you give them, I know it sounds hilarious. Everybody wants to kind of deface the insurance carriers, but the more information you get, give them, the better because it, the, the lack of information actually it usually works against you. They usually assume the worst because imagine applying for life insurance. If you don't disclose something about your health, they'll just sometimes assume the worst. Yeah, I guess it's sort of my nightmare of, you know, say I rewire an outlet and then that outlet catches fire or something and the insurance company comes in and says, oh, well, this was done by you or by, uh, you know, by someone not licensed and we're going to deny coverage entirely. I don't know if that's even a possibility. Yeah, I, 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 you know, as long as there's no exclusion for something like that, mm-hmm. and, and that's actually what we talk about conditions. So in a policy, if updates need to be made, rarely will I see you have to hire a, a licensed electrician mm-hmm. and they may have that. And so that's- So that ranges and it could range. It, it can range. I, I would say- if you're doing it yourself, that I mean, a lot of people do those activities themselves. And uh, at the end of the day, if, if you do create a spark and there's some fire damage, there often will be coverage because it, it's a fire, which is a covered peril mm-hmm. or a covered claim. So I don't think you have to panic as much as you think on that front. I would say if you are hiring a, an electrician or some sort of contractor, yeah, just be just be conscious, especially as you're getting bigger. And as you grow your portfolio, that's maybe where you want someone who has at least some certification mm-hmm. or insurance in place. It doesn't have to be a lot of insurance. Yeah, I mean, I think we can get into that in the next section about hiring people into your house <laughs> if they don't have insurance to do work. So piggybacking off John's question, can you discuss a little bit about where builder's risk comes into play? Sure. So we were just talking about making large repairs, additions, uh, renovations to a, to a structure. And so when something is substantial, so let's hypothetically say you acquire a $300,000 building and you're going to put $150,000 of money to fix it up. And that's that's where uh, really what you need is a, is a builder's risk policy because often ta- and the question also becomes, you know, will anyone be living there? But because when you're doing sort of a major renovation work to a property construction, you have heavy equipment, you have, you know, a lot of hazards going on. So of course it takes on a lot more risk. And to that end is that's where you need something called a builder's risk policy, which is essentially ensuring the structure itself. So in tandem, what will also typically happen is the person doing those renovations, the, ins- the insured, the owner, will get two policies, the builder's risk and a general liability policy, covering two different things. Because if someone gets injured on site, that's what the liability covers. If the builder's risk, it's going to factor in the cost that you that it was, the replacement cost that you, you started with, and then they're going to factor in the monies that you're putting forth 
putting in to, to make upgrades. And so they will factor those in. So if, let's say that th- the $300,000 purchase building is truly a, the replacement cost 300000 and you're putting another $150,000, you are getting $450,000 of coverage. But we understand not every job renovation takes a year. So the whole point is once those are done, because those policies do, do typically run more costly, I'm a big advocate of saying, okay, once once those renovations are done, let's let's forego that policy, if we can cancel it, and then start with, uh, then move forward with a uh, some sort of rented to others property policy because it usually will be cheaper. And you know, because you are, we are trying to work in the best interest of the property owners who are trying to make a profit. Are there distinct companies that only do builders' risk, or is it roofed into general insurance providers that provide normal property insurance as well? So the answer to that is so your your chubs your travelers aren't going to write your your one two three four family builders risk policies. That's mm-hmm. where you do have to tap into these special excess and surplus line markets like a USLI that you know does write these very often because once again they, 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 there's more risk. So your your company your standard companies that you've heard of the everyday companies are typically a little more risk averse. Mm-hmm. So when you have a higher risk or higher exposure, eh, they say, you know, talk to the next guy. And so that's where yeah, these, these Lloyds of London carriers actually come in and do a good job to provide actually usually cost-effective coverage for builder's risk. And so that's usually where I've leaned in those situations. In the event of a claim for something like that, what's the, how does the like risk or where does the risk lie between you as the homeowner, your builder's risk policy, and maybe a an insurance policy that the contractor holds. Oh, so you're saying what d- differentiates? You, so when when you apply for a builder's risk, the first answer question, is sue everyone, right? right. Just sue everyone. <laughs> That's the answer. So so when you obtain your builder's risk, what, what's the first question on the application? Is what is the name of the contractor and can we see a copy of their insurance? Mm-hmm. So if there's a fault, a mistake they made. They're, we talked about risk transfer. They're the insurance company. They're going to hold them liable. They, they, yeah, they want to make sure that the contractor, the electrician, plumber, the the GC, their insurance company kicks in first, and then if more is needed, that's where the the builder's risk. So comes it's intended in. to be in that context. It's intended intended to be a second line of defense behind yeah, there. If it's proven that the contractor was at fault, yes. Okay, gotcha. Just kind of maybe as a concluding question for this um, segment, uh, something that I've I've been curious about it, not even really related to anything. Have you ever seen a property where you just cannot obtain insurance on? Like as in, I mean, I I understand maybe for certain terms in the insurance or or, or certain points in it, but have you seen a property or whatever where it's just no one will insure it? Because there's no kind of insurer of last resort in this industry, right? Is that that even a thing? There's so... At the end of the day, you know, I mean, any insurance company, it doesn't matter where on the globe, they're, everybody's a for-profit company. Right. So they're going to ex- uh, ex- assess the risk. And so there's, you know, unrelated property coverage, there's insurers that do very special things. I mean, uh, I currently live in Hudson County. There's a, a rock climbing gym there. So, of course, that's a high-risk type of business. Mm-hmm. There's probably only a few players out there in the world that will write uh, a rock climbing gym. I mean, there's insurance companies that write body parts on celebrities. <laughs> and but not many of them, and so we're usually where. So to answer your question about have I seen a risk or property that no one want to insure, really what it comes down to it is if you have very very bad claims experience, that's where we run into the biggest problems. Okay, is and that's where claims you, you as the owner or from the property. The, or? Uh, yes. So I mean the other thing I mean what's nice about most property owners are diligent in setting up LLCs separately for every property. Right. But if you're let's say renewing coverage. 
you've had a property for 10 years, but you've in the last three years, you've had a, a, just a series of claims. Doesn't always necessarily matter how what, what the amount of claim damage was. It's it's that frequency of claims that actually- so you're cursed. <laughs> you're cursed. <laughs> um, that can ra- certainly raise red flags because even if you have that beachfront property, mm-hmm. I think this, someone will write it just at what cost. Do those claims- sort of stay with you as the owner? So say you buy a different property, they'll look back and say, oh, you had a bunch of claims at your your house in some other location? Uh, good point, John. So I would say no is if you're setting up a separate LLC, you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're, for legal reasons, you're you're separating those two assets. Got so it. the insurance, that's why the insurance company isn't, if you're buying a new property, they don't, under a new LLC, they don't know who the owners are, mm-hmm. what their experience is. So they're, other than just truly looking at that risk, that piece of property, that's really all they have to go on. We talk about setting up LLCs all the time, and as an attorney, I do that, but I've actually never thought about it in the context of insurance claims risk, as in if you have a claim with one property in LLC, you can just say, that's it, and that'll help your your future investment. That's a great point. Yeah, that, that it is a big one. So so your claims history, so your your loss history, the, the big thing I know we're trying to wrap up is it goes back five years. That's a good rule of thumb. So if you if you can be claims-free within a property you've held for five years, that's where you actually can uh, can help yourself and where you may find that that relief and premium. The other aspect is with flood coverage is so un, unlike you buying a new property, well, the NFIP can look to see have there been claims on a particular property in the past. That's where you can get dinged a little bit. Oh, um, so even from previous owners. From previous the previous owner really would mostly apply if it was it was flood related. Mm-hmm. However, you know, there are once in a while we'll run to a situation where there was there was a claim from the the prior owner, depending on the claim, they may say, the insurance company may say, you need to make these updates in order to, because maybe there was faulty wiring that resulted in a fire. Right. So that's why they're always looking for uh, for updates. So they are looking at the property. Of course, there's a huge database that every insurance company has access to and shares to see who's been on claim. And uh, that's something we do look at. I mean, when you're buying homeowners coverage, you essentially have your own insurance score. And so- Really? Yeah, everybody has their own insurance score. I did not know that. Uh, kind of like a credit report, but for insurance. And so- But you can't see publicly. Can't see publicly. Is it only related to claims or does it try to create like a risk profile of you overall? Uh, good, good, no, great question. It's Does it, it include your credit score? <laughs> it, 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 totally it, it, key it, determinant. They, they can actually, if you're, when you're applying for a policy, there's usually what's called a soft hit on your credit because they'll look at your prior addresses to gotcha. uh, determine that they want to make sure you also are are not you know insolvent family. Right. And- but your claims history is always big, and I. So the, this point I'll make about claims history: there, are, you know, is, have been times where I've seen a couple with three claims in the last two years trying to buy a new home, and they're moving into, let's say, a two or three family living on one of the floors, and uh, and they're having huge difficulties getting coverage because they're reporting a, an eight hundred dollar bike getting stolen, not just once but twice in the last two years, and then in addition to their apartment building burning down. And so they so they have let's say a sixty five thousand dollar claim and two eight hundred dollar claims over the last two years. That frequency looks bad because keep in mind every time you you submit a claim, there's due diligence and cost on the insurance carrier's part to process the claim. So that what is the point of insurance? It's for high severity, low frequency. If you do it the other way around, put in a lot of small claims, it, it definitely will hurt you in the long run. And so the use of deductibles then really is a key factor to look at. And I feel like some people forget about that. Um, is, is you don't want to be encouraged to take out the small claims. Right. Sort of the opposite of health insurance, I would say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're not doing your building a favor by getting it frequently serviced. Right. <laughs>
This has been great, Brandon. I, I feel like there's, I have even more questions, but just for the sake of uh, expediency and, and keeping it to a time limit, we should stop here and then do another episode, which we will shortly about the other side of, of insurance as you will. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to say, how could people contact you if they want to get in touch to talk about insurance issues? Do you have an email address, website, anything like that? Sure. So actually the best way to get a hold of me is is my uh, my brand website which is actually libeskininsurance.com. Uh you can go to my website. Number to call me on 212-457-1626 and that that is the best place to to reach me on once again libeskin insurance. Can I spell that? L I E B as in boy, E as in Edward, S as in Sam, K as in kangaroo, I as in igloo, N as in Nancy, D as in dog, the word insurance.com, believebiscuitinsurance.com. And, uh, you know, I appreciate uh, both Ryan and John having me for this segment. Had a lot of fun. We're going to take our dance break now. Uh, <laughs> we've got, I know we're going to certainly everybody listening out there is uh, looking to party right now as well after this conversation. Oh, I am. I'm ready to go. So <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. We'll be back with another episode. Thank you so much. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick Podcast.